0: oh amen that was good it is good to worship a king that is worthy of worship i was just penciling in that line your love is brighter your glory brighter and my heart is set on you man i want my heart to say that every hour of every day amen that was off script but i want that i want that for me i want that for you that's what being a family, God's family, is about. Uh, this has been really a good week. Uh, many of you got to come to the evening of prayer, uh, whole church night of prayer last Monday. That's been such a delight. This has been really the, the first year that I've ever gotten to be a part of that at Grace Bible Church. Um, and it's just been splendid, really, to come together intentionally around prayer. There was... Um, a sister in Christ, she was leading her section and she, she walked up and uh, sw- I think the first words out of her mouth were, you know, you remember the good news, you remember the gospel. And then she quoted John 3.16. And you know, it's, it's funny because I, I probably learned that about six, but, but you know, it was just so wonderful to be refreshed by a sister in Christ, have her say, for God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And the, the whole time was a blessing, but that was kind of the pinnacle for me. Uh, just remembering that's why we're here. God so loved the world. And we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 6. But that is, that is the point. This is a response to God's love. And I just sort of want to open with uh, what I, where I think the Sermon on the Mount fits in that wonderful gospel. The gospel begins with God sending his son in our place that we could be invited in as children of God. But that isn't where it ends, right? Right? The the gospel doesn't end with, okay, I guess I'm forgiven, God will put up with me. He invites us in as children. He wants a flourishing life for us. And that's really the story Matthew tells in his gospel. Uh, In Matthew 4, actually the first command that Matthew records of Jesus is Jesus saying to the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus starts by saying, you know that the entry point to this belonging to this, this eternal life is, is repentance, is recognizing that we are broken and we need Christ's forgiveness. But that isn't the end of the conversation. Your father wants so much more for you and me. And so uh, last week was midterms over at the college, so I thought I'd start with a really easy pop quiz. What do you think God envisions eternal life like? A or B? Hey, hey, this is, this is tricky, right? Both people have hearts beating, right? Both people are living technically, right? Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, right? So hopefully you got that. God wants eternal life to be bountiful. To be full of life. And I think that is what the Sermon on the Mount is. So we've we've had this sort of summary that we've come back to a number of times. But Jesus is saying to those who would be called by God's name, I love you. I want you to experience life in its fullness. And that starts with this. Treasure God as your heavenly father. He wants you. He wants you to belong. He's called you. He's called me his own. Can you trust that his ways are wonderful? He's not holding out on you. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He loves us desperately. And then Jesus, as an older brother in the family, says to us, You can flourish. I want you to flourish by following wholeheartedly. Do this with your whole heart. And I mentioned when we got to uh, Matthew 5, 48, that I thought it was just a great summary of really the entire beautiful message. Jesus says, be perfect, be wholehearted, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, is wholehearted. He's calling us to this wholehearted, beautiful life. He's calling us to have our hearts set on him. So we're a little over halfway. Let's sort of zoom in on chapter 6. Jesus starts out uh, chapter 6, verse 1, with sort of a summary of where he's going. Uh, He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the the question sort of is where, where are you looking to for affirmation, for hope? Where is your hope in? And Jesus sort of fleshes this out with three stories. So you remember two weeks ago we talked about so when you give to the needy. And Jesus' warning, that would be really easy to do for other people. And then maybe sort of, maybe a little surprising last week, prayer. Jesus says, so when you pray. Be careful that that isn't done for other people. It's it's meant to be this thing that binds you to your father in heaven and gives you a bigger picture of his kingdom coming, of his ways that are truly wonderful, truly higher than our ways. And this is the third story, sort of the completion, and it's fasting. So we start in verse 16, and this is what Jesus says. When you fast... Do not look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men their fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So, if, you know, if you've been in the church for a number of years, imagine if you kept a tally of how many times people talked about praying, how many times people talked about sort of giving to the needy, and how many times people talked about fasting. And maybe your church's experience is real different than mine, but, you know, these are the three things that that Jesus is telling us about as far as, hey, when you're flourishing, when you're becoming consumed with God's kingdom, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. And, and it's just really weird how rarely we talk about this. It seems like Jesus actually assumes when you fast. It's not if, if you fast, when you fast. Um, and notice, uh, you might say, wow, that's, that's, really, that's really different from my experience and uh, so I want to sort of do something a little different than we do most weeks because really in the entire sermon, this might be the topic that people are sort of least familiar with. Um, I, uh, with the luxury of modern Googling technology, I, I took the time and I went through every, every time the Old Testament talked about um, fasting. Turns out two dozen times, 24 times, fasting is dealt with in the Old Testament. Um, you might know the story of Jonah going to Nineveh. And saying repent, and the king of Nineveh declares a fast. Nineveh declares a fast, right? And uh, they repent, and the heart of God is moved by by these people fasting and praying. Uh, you might remember King David fasting for his son, interceding for his son. Uh, it seems like it's it's kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. Two dozen times, there are lots of things that don't get mentioned that much. Uh, it, one interesting fact as I was trying to understand sort of what the Bible says about fasting, two-thirds of those references are actually to corporate fasting. So at when the body would gather together, often to remember something important. So I'm not an expert in um, Jewish history, but by my read, there are six, uh, six Jewish fasts that Jesus' audience would have, remember, his audience was, was mainly Israelites, almost exclusively Israelites. And so the people coming there would have known just very well, maybe better than you or I would, about this idea of fasting. Which, by the way, is not eating intentionally for something more important than food. For something they saw as more important than food. Now, fasting, you could talk about fasting more, more generally, like fasting from social media or something like that, but Jesus was really talking about uh, physically not eating, and the people in front of him would have, would have all nodded their heads and known something that maybe isn't a part of our experience. So six times a year, maybe the most famous would have been Yom uh, Everybody in the community was called not to eat, to remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, so God's gift of the law, and then also to remember God forgiving them for uh, making a golden calf and worshiping the calf while Moses was out of town, right? And so it was a time of both remembrance for the Jewish community and also of repentance, recognizing that our hearts are prone to wander. And so, this is sort of the context of the people that Jesus would have been speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. He would have been speaking to people that were familiar with this thing that maybe you and I aren't so familiar with. Um, It would be easy to get through um, church and not know because it's sort of a private thing, you might not know that the person sitting in front of you in two seats to the right actually fasts regularly because it's not something they would talk about, right? So you might say, well, okay, that's that's sort of an Old Testament thing. And I could tell you, yeah, it was written about ten times in the New Testament, this, this being one of them. Um, and uh, you could say, well, okay, I, I sort of get that. Interestingly enough, even in the New Testament, it's written predominantly about, Fasting together for something. I don't know if any of you uh, heard about or got to partake in the the, the fast for the children of Nacodochus yesterday. That I think it was eleven pastors throughout the community asked us uh, to consider being involved in it. That's, that's really honestly unlike anything I've I've ever been a part of, where the pastors in a town would invite people to pray corporately. But that would have been, that would have been common for, for the Jewish believers. I suspect most of you have have never thought this thought, but I just for for any who have, I wanna, I wanna specifically address one scripture. In Matthew 9, Jesus is asked why his disciples don't fast. And Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Okay, so Jesus is pretty explicitly saying his disciples will fast, right? Very occasionally, I've, I've run across people who've read that and said, well, you know, um, maybe that means kind of, I mean, we know Jesus, so, so fasting, we can kind of skip that. That's not very important. And I think that's really, the reason I bring that up actually is I think it's a really important opportunity to talk about how do you read scripture? You read that and you say, gee, what should I do with that? If you were to hold on to one principle, of reading scripture, I would say, make it this. You want to interpret scripture in terms of the rest of scripture. So you might say, gee, let's let's sort of test that view. Maybe maybe we're kind of done with fasting, we know Jesus, um, with other scripture. So for instance, what happens when Jesus is baptized in Matthew 4? Well, he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. Well, Jesus was sinless, right? So this isn't an issue with, uh, you know, if God, if I were sinless, I could just not fast. Jesus has perfect communion with the Father, right? So this isn't an issue of, gee, if I just, you know, maybe maybe if you have better communion with the Father than Jesus, this isn't an issue for you, right? Um, well, what about after Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, Again, I think it's so important to to look at Scripture and try to understand what is the Bible saying about this thing that is uh, commonly referenced. So I want to flip to uh, Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 2. Um, Now this, Saul has become a believer. If you know Saul, who later became Paul, later wrote actually the majority of the New Testament. He is in Antioch. He's praying with believers, and I'll pick up in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Clearly, the Apostle Paul saw fasting interwoven with two things, interestingly enough. Worship, fasting with worship, and fasting with prayer, if you, if you listened closely there, as something really important for a New Testament believer, for you and for me. Not because of some miserable duty, but because God wants us to flourish. God wants us to rejoice. So, I mean, I guess one would then sort of have to say, well, what about Christian history? If you were going to let me sort of have maybe a couple of Principles for interpreting Scripture. Just one is interpret Scripture in terms of Scripture. Two is you want to be cautious if you read Scripture and you get a different conclusion than those believers who've gone before us for the last two thousand years, right? Uh, well, for the last, for the majority of the last two thousand years, um, fasting has been incredibly common. In fact, in um, in churches that have high liturgical practice, often fasting is institutionalized uh, during Lent, the 40 days leading up to to Easter. And uh, John Wesley, the 1700s evangelist, preacher, we actually sing some of the songs. He was a hymn writer. He actually would not ordain a pastor who didn't fast two days a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. He saw it as really important. And so... I need to ask myself, you need to ask yourself, okay, we're in a culture that is sort of driven by convenience and pleasure, right? Uh, That's in case you're watching TV and you're wondering what those commercials are marketing to, it's pleasure, gratification, quick gratification, and we've lost this practice that is about anything but gratification. I contend, You should be cautious there. You should ask, why is it that fasting isn't a part of my life if it's not a part of your life? And Jesus so much assumes that it's a part of your life that he doesn't really get into it too much in this text. But I do want to ask this question, why fast? Um, I think the answer, you can go through scripture. We've talked about Nineveh. We've talked about Jesus. And I have sort of a list, but my list starts here. You fast to be weak. Okay, So let's not just over-spiritualize this. When you don't have food, you don't feel as good, right? Longing for food is a natural longing. Um, When I don't eat, I'm grumpier. When I fast, it's harder to forgive other people because I don't feel real good. I'm cranky. You're weaker physically, maybe mentally. But it's for a purpose. Why would we intentionally weaken ourselves? And this is sort of the list that I've, I've sort of summarized. The first and foremost answer is intimacy with God. Um, I remember I grew up in a church that uh, you know we never talked about Lent or anything else. and So the first time I discovered this was about 20 years ago. I was a freshman in college and I was at a church and um, they said, hey, there's this thing called Lent. I thought it was so amazing. My roommate and I agreed that we would give up sweets and TV for all 40 days. I loved Jesus. I gave up TV, right, for 40 whole days. And I got to say, it was really interesting to give up something that my, my body longed for I do kind of like sweets, too. Um, for something more significant. And and it was it was lovely, sort of this, this being drawn back to something more significant. Um, fasting humbles you. You don't feel as perky. Uh, fasting, fasting is is about humbling yourself before God and saying, you are God and I am not. Fasting. Um, notice that when when Saul and Barnabas were fasting, that was the time in which God led them into ministry. We need the Lord's direction. Humbling ourselves, making space for what God does, might seem counterintuitive, but my life is really crowded. I'm going to bet most of your lives are really crowded. There's a lot there, and so really what we're doing is we're stripping away things that are somewhat essential for that which is absolutely essential, and that is our dependence on God. Direction, preparation, right? Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness preparing for the Lord's favor, recognizing that unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain somehow i think fasting and also a sabbath rest are to help us to remember i may be working hard and i may see things coming out of my hand but unless the lord is in it nothing will happen nothing good will happen we need the lord's provision we need to remember that we have the lord's provision and that brings me to the last thing that i think you see when you look at scripture talking about fasting Fasting is about remembering what is truly important, what is truly important so let's let 's imagine you you 're fairly familiar with uh, maybe the why to fast, but you you sort of thought about this, maybe you have heard about it. Well, how do you go about fasting um, i would I would say these these are sort of the you know, maybe a sort of a simple list. You need to be clear why you're fasting. There's there's not much biblical precedent for people just saying, oh, you know, I'm just not gonna eat for a while. I mean, <laughs> it's it's not really supposed to be a walk in the park, fun. Um by the way, uh losing weight is kind of a, a lousy reason to fast. It turns out um, research says that if you don't eat anything for an extended period of time, uh your metabolism slows way down, and you burn less calories. So this is this is not like for your health. You should this is this is a spiritual issue. Um, you should you should probably seek wisdom on what to fast, on how long. I'd encourage you uh, to to read what the Bible has to say about fasting. Maybe talk to talk to a, a friend who has experience. If if this is something new to you, uh, certainly there are there are tremendous. Uh, works, uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline being just one among dozens and dozens, talking about spiritual disciplines that can be a tremendous blessing to life. Fasting is about humility, and I would encourage you, if if you enter into fast, if you're already fasting, be intentional about asking the Lord for humility, and, and be prepared for sort of human frailty. When I go without food, my body is weaker. I'm more irritable. You need to prepare for that. Uh, one verse that I, I sort of committed to memory and, um, and I use when I go without food because I think it's very instructive. Uh, this is from uh, Deuteronomy 8. Moses says, God humbled you, speaking to the Israelites, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, in order to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Lest you think that I'm really creative for using that during fasting, that was what Jesus used at the end of his fast. He claimed that scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting is a delightful thing. It teaches us, it teaches us, we teach ourselves to hunger for that which is most important. I encourage you, set aside time in fasting to nourish yourself on God's word. Let the hunger push you to prayer. How many of us at some point have you know, heard the scripture, pray without ceasing, and have sort of set up set out through the day and said, I'm going to pray a lot today. You know, I even, like, one time I, I set my, my timer on my watch to go off at intervals because I was going to, like, I'm going to pray, like, every hour or something. And, you know, I was just, somehow I got distracted. You know, I was in the middle of something and I stopped it. And You probably won't forget that you're hungry. Your body's pretty good at reminding you. And you can use that as a trigger when you feel hunger to push you into prayer, because that's what our souls need. That's what our souls need. Um, I would say, finally, and this comes back to the passage, I think you really need to be conscious not to focus on others in this, because Jesus' main main uh, point in warning us uh, in this scripture don't look somber like the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. They're looking, they're looking to other people for a reward, for approval. And I, I was careful how I worded that. Don't focus on other people. Because frankly, it might be that in your culture, you don't get extra kudos for fasting you actually get maybe slightly ostracized for fasting. There was, there was a time that I was, I was fasting in college and my grandmother came to visit unexpectedly and found out I wasn't eating. And she called my mother and told me I looked really scrawny. You know, I mean, and, <laughs> you know, uh, my, my approval needs to come from God, right? And that, I think, is what Jesus is pulling us back to Our hearts need to be set on approval from our Father who is unseen. Our hearts need to be drawn toward that which is unseen. We do seek a reward, but we seek it from our Father in heaven. And so I want to ask you a question. It's exactly the same question I asked when we opened these these three stories. Um, Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it to get a reward? people give, or the rewards that God gives. And this doesn't just apply to fasting, just apply to giving. Our hearts desperately need for your heart health to be fixed on God. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. And it's a really systemic thing. You know, the words that Jesus says right after this, actually, in most, in most of our Bibles, there's actually a section break between, uh, what is that? I guess, uh, verse 18 and verse 19, which I have up here. Uh, but, right, Jesus didn't speak in paragraphs, and he certainly didn't say, verse 19, now, uh, so Jesus is is both, I believe, summing up what he's been saying in the last three stories and also preparing us. This will also be where we start actually next week. But he's saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't treasure th- this this fleeting human approval for somebody who, you know, They're going to be here. They're going to think well of you one day. They're going to be in a bad mood the next. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We want to be intentional about whose approval we're seeking, where we're looking to sort of of store the things that we treasure inside. And I think this last verse is really, really insightful For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you think more and more about the things of God, about winning his approval, he already loves you. He's already a father that loves you unconditionally. But you can make your father happy. My son makes makes me happy at times, right? And there are other times, not so much. Never ceases to be my son. But our hearts should be after that. And in fact, as you treasure that, as you carve out time in your life for those things that are really significant, your heart tends to follow more and more. This is a cyclic process. It's a really important process, sort of. We shepherd our hearts into treasuring things that are unseen, things that are eternal. So, I guess... I want to sort of close by, by saying this. I was trying to make up a sort of an honest list of where my mind is on a Sunday morning. So uh, sometimes I'm sort of thinking about, okay, lunch, you know, who am I having it with? Or is the food going to be good? Sometimes I, I'm often attracted to, guy, I, I hope there's a little extra chill time, maybe even enough time for a nap in the afternoon. Um, you know, maybe I hope the kids aren't cranky, or maybe maybe you're saying, I hope my parents aren't cranky, or, oh, my roommate isn't too cranky today. Um, you know, I hope, I hope that that argument that I had with so-and-so doesn't, doesn't flare up again. I just hope the Cowboys win, frankly. You know, <laughs> can I get an amen from the third row? Uh, yeah, I mean, so we have all of these things that are pulling us, pulling us towards the scene, towards the felt. We need to be intentional, intentional about shepherding our hearts to focus on those things that are unseen. Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. And he came, yes, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. But he didn't mean it to look like this picture on the left, he didn't mean it to be a slave to my own earthly desires. He came that we might have life, came that we might have it to the full. He longs that we would flourish by letting go, letting go of the things that we would demand. Do you have to fast? No. Do you have to give? No. Do you have to pray? No. I could never say a word again to my father and he would still be my father, right? I could never say another word to him and he would still be my father. It would be a tragedy, honestly. I mean, right? It would, it would, it would, it would just be miserable. You don't have to. I hope you want to focus on the unseen things. I know your father wants you. He wants your heart. He wants my heart to be after him, to be focused on the unseen, and to live a life that flourishes in him. Let's pray together and then come back to him and worship. Oh, Lord, our hearts are set on you. Help our hearts to be set on you. We recognize that we are pulled after all sorts of things that are shallow. Uh, Maybe things that are even good but things that sometimes distract us from you. I pray that you would attract us, draw us to you, draw us into your heart. Give us a balanced view, a view that doesn't see your word as a checklist, but sees it as a lamp unto our feet. sees it as loving invitation into relationship with you, into abiding in you. I pray that you would tune our hearts, tune our minds to sing your praise, this day and always, in Jesus' name. And then.